starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we give you thanks. For you are a God who is good. You are a God who cares for your people. Father, we praise and we thank you that though you are a holy God and your glory extends throughout creation, you are not a God when we um, sinned and rebelled that you, though you had been justified, did not cast us into a punishment. But Father, you uh, delighted and you, uh, you made it your glory to rescue a people for yourself. And you humbled yourself. And you laid aside the rights and honor as creator and Lord and master. And you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come as a representation of your people, your creation, to be born of a woman, to take on the limitations of our human body, but to fulfill the word of God and love the Lord with, he loved the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and he loved his neighbor as himself. He was perfectly righteous, Father, and he was also perfectly obedient. Obedience in fulfilling the Father's plan of redemption that he allowed his creation, the ones he had spoken into existence to crucify him to beat him, to mock him, to scourge him, to humiliate him so that we would not face the just punishment of our sin. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you did not leave us in the sin that we deserve, but you so loved us that you sent your son. May that truth transform us. May that truth captivate us in a time of materialism and consumerism and the hustle and bustle of Christmas with schedules and parties and food, we can so easily become weary that we do not stop and speak to our hearts, hush, peace be still. I pray that this morning that you would do that. And as we join together again tomorrow night, that it would be a time that your peace, your joy, your love would speak to our hearts that we would see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, that we may have fellowship with God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Be seated.
I um, last few weeks we've been preaching through the various candles in the Advent wreath. It's not a new thing by any means. I go on various churches to spy on them and see what they're preaching to sometimes get ideas, and they're preaching the same things. Um, so it really, it's not revolutionary, but it's a good reminder of why we do what we do and why we celebrate uh, at Christmas time, this Advent season, uh, the birth of our Savior. And uh, we have looked at the hope and the peace and the joy, and now the question is, we look at love. And I ask you this, que- this question as I have asked myself these questions this week, what is love? And there are many people that come up with different answers to that question. And as I have let the cat out of the bag, you go to our modern, not modern day, but still classic modern day philosophers, Lennon and McCartney, is they told us that all you need is love. And they told us over and over and over again in that song. And they pretty much didn't tell us anything else. But I don't think of any song when I think of love that has captured the imagination of our culture, probably Western culture, is this song, All You Need Is Love. Another person comes, some Robert Burns, some 500 years ago, before they learned how to spell the word love, he says, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. My love is like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. Poets uh, write about it, singers sing about it, and evolutionary uh, anthropologists write about it, and they're not writing for Hallmark. Uh, She says this, that we as a species need to cooperate with one another to survive and to subsist and to learn and to reproduce and to raise our children. And she says that romantic love and parental love is essentially the neurochemical reward for cooperating. In other words, love is just a chemical dump in our brain that we have. And again, she won't be writing for Hallmark anytime soon in her writings. Even in our, our, our language, in English, there are many forms of love. We love pizza, we love our pets, we love football, we love our children, we love our country, and we love our spouse. Love hurts, love is the answer, love is made, love is in the air, love is a verb, love is blind, and as the great theologian Pat Benatar said, love is a battlefield. Love is many things to many people. So the question that we have to consider today is, are these people right about love? Is there more to love? Is there less to love? Is love just an emotion? Is it just a physical attraction? Is it just a commitment? Is it just a desire? Is it just a chemical dump that we have as evolutionary creatures that are here because of cosmic accidents? As Christians, not being able to answer that question complicates things at around this time of year. Because Advent is the time that we celebrate the love of God. One of the songs which I think we need to probably next year bring back into our rotation, a great hymn that a lot of the hymnals have dropped out, but this was written in 1885. A a young lady wrote this song. I think her name was Christina Rossetti. And she wrote, love came down at Christmas, love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas, stars and angels gave the sign. 
Worship we the Godhead, love incarnate, love divine. Worship we our Jesus, but wherewith for sacred sign. Love shall be our token, love be yours and mine. Love to God and to all men. Love for um, please and gift and sign. What is Christian love? I I propose to you this morning that Christian love is this. Is this. Christian love is the goodness of God delighting in the welfare of his people. The uh, Christian love is the goodness of God delighting in the welfare of his people. God's love is given us and expressed uh, three ways. God's love is a holy love. God's love is a selfless love. And God's love is a purposeful love. And John, the apostle, written, was writing this uh, letter to believers in, northern, um, the, in the northern Mediterranean. At the end of his life, he was 80 or 90, and he's writing to them because that there was uh, danger that they would be wooed away from the love of God. And he was emphasizing these are the marks of what it means to be, follow Jesus, and the essential character is love. Notice verse 7 and 8, how God loves with a holy love, and we are called to love with a holy love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If we are to extend God's love to one another, if we were to, to follow the commandment and the urging of John, we must understand what the nature of God's love is. Because if we don't understand, if we misunderstand God's nature, we are fraught with the, the danger of misrepresenting God and in the name of Christian love. So John writes this letter emphasizing the nature of love in the light of of God's children. And he tells us in verse 7 that Christian love flows from the heart of God. There are love uh, that happens within the creation, all different types of love that we have seen uh, that's been answered from everywhere, from Shakespeare to Lennon, McCartney, and to many other chemical biologists and anthropologists. But Christian love, true divine love, flows from the heart of God. Christian love is also the evidence that one has been born again, that the Spirit of God dwells in the heart of, the, of a believer. And then Christian love deepens the more that you understand and know the heart of God. So, God's love, brothers and sisters, this morning is no mere trifle. It's a matter of intense importance to be able to know the heart of God. So, at the end of verse 7, we see John tells us this famous verse that is quoted over and over and over again, God is love. And he is saying this because love is, flows from the character of who God is. And therefore, we understand that when, if love is to be Christian love, a divine love, it must be a holy love that expresses God's goodness and is consistent with his nature. Holy love expresses God's goodness and is consistent with his nature. Notice uh, the, the first aspect that is, is an expression of God's goodness. 
In Psalm 145, verses 9 and then 15 and 16, it says the Lord is what? Is good to all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. God loves the world. God loves His creation. And how does this this express itself, this love? It says the eyes of you look to you and they give them their food in due season. You open up your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. This is not just the righteous. It's not just the obedient. It's not just the holy. But the goodness of God has a general love for the world. And he, he sends the rain on the wicked and the righteous as well. J, uh, Lewis Burkhoff, the great Reformed theolo- uh, theologian, says this, the goodness of God is that perfection of God which prompts him to deal bountifully and kindly with all his creatures. This is general revelation, that how God has deals and cares, where Jesus says, look at how the Lord knows the, the concerns, the cares of the Gentiles. How much more will He care for His children? God provides for His creation. But you might say, well, I thought God hates sin and therefore hates sinners. Yes, God hates sin. But though God hates the sin that is, has ruined and poisoned and festers in His creation, He also still remains and still loves His creation. He loves them for His own sake. He loves them because they are still image bearers of God. We talked about image bearing in Sunday school. And though we are not as we once were in the garden, but like the, um, the ancient buildings of Rome, the Colosseum and the Parthenon, though they weren't were magnificent edifices and buildings, they are now in ruins. But when you go there, you see the glory of them, even though they are broken and fallen down. The same thing with God. He sees in His image bearers the remnants of His goodness and His glory, and He loves them for Himself. He sees His virtue, His work, and His gifts. God does not withdraw His love from His image bearers, despite the fact that their sin and our sin is an abomination to Him. God's goodness motivates His love for His creation. But God's love is not just general goodness and care and provision for His people. God's love is in harmony with the rest of His nature. J.I. Packer in his great book, Knowing God, says there's probably not a more beautiful statement and utterances in in the language than God is love, and there's probably also not one that is fraught with twisted and tangles of mankind who have put up barbs and, and thickets around that to it has marred the truth of that. When, God's, when Jesus, uh, John says God is love, he is not negating everything that has been revealed about God's nature up to this point. But like a little boy or a little girl that takes a magnifying glass and begins to burn a piece of paper by using that magnifying glass and taking the light that's shining and focusing on that piece of paper, John is taking the revelation that has already been given, 
throughout all the, the prophets and the apostles, and he's focusing it in on the fact that God is love. Turn back probably a couple chapters to the left. Jesus, or John doesn't say just that God is love. God also, John also says that God is light. Notice in verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Notice what it says, is that God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. As John is writing, there was a group of individuals in this church that were calling themselves Christians and believers and that they had fellowship with God, yet they were embracing wickedness and sinfulness and lifestyles that were contrary to what God has already revealed. And John says this cannot be, that you cannot refute what God has already revealed in Scripture and say that you have fellowship with God. Because light, when it says God is light, is holiness and it's purity by God's definition, not our definition. And when God says it's darkness, there's sin and unrighteousness. And these are defined by God and they're measured by God and they're revealed by God. And to walk in the light means that you walk in the holiness and the righteousness that God has revealed in His Word. It is impossible to walk in darkness and say that you have fellowship with the God of light. Packer, again in his book, says this. He says, so the Son of God who is love is first and foremost what? Light. And sentimental ideas of his love as an indulgent, benevolent softness, divorced from moral standards, must therefore be ruled out from the start. God's love is a holy love. You cannot genuinely love somebody or point them towards love if you say you're walking in darkness, but that's okay because God is love. He's a sentimental grandfather that pats you on the head and says everything is okay. Christian love flows from the heart of God. And it must reflect the righteousness of God. Christians, we are called to put sin to death because God is a God who is holy. He is a God of light. And he loves righteousness and he hates iniquity because he loves us too much to allow us to treasure the things of this world and the emptiness of sin and not find satisfaction in his fellowship with him. When we embrace darkness, we cannot go into the fellowship of God who is light, who loves us and cares for us. Hebrews talks about this about the discipline of God. Often, uh, when we go through discipline, we uh, don't understand why discipline is happening to us. And before I get to the verse, I want to tell you, when I was a, a young boy, um, as a pastor, as a future pastor, I was really nearly flawless because I didn't do very many bad things. My parents are here and they can attest to that. Uh, no. There were times when my father would have to discipline me. And he would say, like many parents, the cliche, this will hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I was like, whatever. Uh, and often my discipline involved a belt in my backside. 
Um, but, and as, and I didn't understand, and I didn't like it, and I cried, and I was angry, and all of that, and as my relationship with my father grew, and I got to know my father, my father is probably one of the kindest, gentlest men you will ever meet, and then I learned more about my father's childhood, a very difficult and painful childhood, and when I realized that when my father would discipline me, it hurt him to be able to do that. But he loved me too much to allow me to be a young man that did what I wanted to do. Though I didn't understand why he was ruining my fun or not letting me get away with what I wanted to get away with me. He loved me too much. Even though it pained his heart to have to discipline me, he loved me like that. And this is what the author of Hebrews says, the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. And he chastises every son and daughter whom he receives. He disciplines us for our, what? Good. Even though at that moment, the sting of the, of the punishment, we think, oh, he's just being mean and being hateful, or he does not understand that we may share in what? His holiness. Discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God loves us too much to be able to let us do what we want and walk in the way that we want. But when we go through it, our minds don't understand what God is doing, and we can't understand His wisdom, and we can't perceive His goodness. It doesn't feel good when God won't give us what we want and what we desire, but God wants what's greater. He cares more about our well-being and our holiness than our feelings. How many times have you heard somebody declare, I could just never love a God who would do this or call me to do this or make me do, give up this in other words that says i could just i could in other words they're saying i could uh, i could never love a god who doesn't think or act differently than how i think or how i act divine love expresses the holiness of god and seeks the holiness of the one he sets his favor on God's love is good every moment of every day, even when we don't understand the reasons, we don't recognize his purposes, and we don't like it. God's love is an expression of his goodness, and it is um, always a holy love in, in, in harmony with his nature. Ocean Park, we are promised that God's love delights in the well-being of his children. He wants what is best for us. Like my father wanted what was best for me as a child. God knows that we will never find lasting joy apart from Him. And apart from fellowship with Him. Therefore, He is working to cleanse us of our idols, of our sinful desires and pleasures, to be able to make us more like Jesus. Even when we don't understand and we don't agree with what He's doing. Likewise, when we understand the nature of God and what he's doing in the lives of his children, it changes how we love. 
Our love doesn't become a narcissistic, selfish, what can you do for me and what have you done for me lately? Our love becomes, I seek the, the well-being, I seek uh, the, the, the good for those around us. And when we expend, extend our love to our brothers and sisters, we can't endorse and encourage and enable them to cling what God has revealed as sin. Indeed, we extend holy love that desires what is good and holy and pleasurable in the lives of his sons and his daughters, our brothers and sisters. Because Christian love is the goodness of God delighting in the welfare or well-being of his people. Not only is God's love a holy love, but God's love is a selfless love. Notice in verse 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest even among us, that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. So this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The measure of love is how much love gives. There are many people in your life that have probably said that I love you. But it turns out in their actions, they only want what is yours or they only want what they can uh, get out of you or they want to use you to please themselves. This is manipulative love. Then there's others who say they love you, but they won't give you your time, won't give you their attention, and won't give you their affection. Their love is meaningless. John declares the magnitude of the love of God. God didn't just say, I love you. God showed that He loved you. And that was demonstrated at the cross. The cross reminds us that the love of God is unconditional and it, come, it came at great personal cost to the heart of God. Notice that God's selfless love is unconditional. When I first fell in love with Denise, it was because I thought she was beautiful, she was wise, and she's smart and funny and many other reasons, and those reasons have just grown and multiplied. But I want you to consider why God loves you. Think about it. Don't say it out loud. Why does God love you? Is it because you're how smart you are? How beautiful you are? How funny you are? How nice you are? And before you come to your final answer and your final conclusion and you buzz in this morning, I want to remind you what nature says about the heart of man and the nature of man. That we all have broken the law of God. Our nature is corrupt in His sight. And we desire only condemnation. And we deserve only condemnation and eternal banishment from the favorable presence, from His favorable presence in hell. Truth be told, there is nothing in you and nothing in me that should draw God's love to us. In fact, when all the evidence has been uh, brought forward, there is no reason that God should love us. This is what verse 10 tells us. In this is love. Not that you have loved God, but that God has loved us. See, the reason God loves you is not because you loved Him first. 
because you took a step towards him, you made a decision to follow him, that you were strongly considering whether to that you might choose to love him, and he went ahead and made the commitment. The reason God loves you is because he is loving. He is good. His love is free, it's spontaneous, it's unprovoked, and it's uncaused. His love is unearned, and it's unconditional. For whatever reason you may have come up in with your mind, you could say, the reason God loves me is this. That's also the reason that someone could say, God doesn't love you anymore, because you're not really that very lovable. All the reasons we can come up will immediately evaporate. But 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 says this, But we ought always to give thanks to, to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, that are loved by God, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit, making us holy, and belief in the truth, the, the knowledge of the gospel. God loved you because he chose to love you. God looked on spiritually dead, rebellious creatures who had committed cosmic treason and said, I love you because it pleases me to love you. He loved us not because of anything in us, but because of everything in him. And if God chose to love us, there's nothing that we can do that will disqualify him. Uh, his love for us, because he doesn't change. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. God's love for you was not based on anything you did. It was despite what we've done. Amen? I know we're not Pentecostals, but an amen every once in a while can be happy. We're not Presbyterians. We can get a little animated, right? Glory. Not only is God's selfless love unconditional, but it came at a great personal cost. God's selfless love was seen on the cross when God chose to set his love on a particular people. God didn't have to do that. God didn't have to create the world. In fact, within the Trinity, as we've been teaching in the children in the New City Catechism, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was a perfect unity of perfect relationship and perfect love. God didn't need the world. He was perfectly happy, perfectly joyful. But God chose, as an overflow of the love that exists in the relationship between the Father and Son, Holy Spirit, to create a beautiful world, which was an expression of the love of God, to be able to show his glory by bestowing his love on that creation. And God, when Adam and Eve fell, didn't have to say, I will send somebody to crush the head of Satan, the enemy, and to redeem you from the offspring of the woman. God didn't have to do that. He could have said, I'm done with y'all. You blew it. That's his grace. That's his mercy. But what God did is he said, I am glorious, and I will tie my glory to the redemption of the people that trust me. 
who put their faith in me as Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God said, I am glorious, look what I have made. And I have glorious because I will redeem this unglorious, unlovable people for myself. And when all is said and done, the world will say, God is glorious. He has done great things. He has redeemed a people for himself. And that will be the song of heaven that we sing. The creator of life allowed himself to be written into the story. To redeem these people from their sin. And it is glorious and it is lovely and it is beautiful. But it came at a great cost. Notice verse 9. God sent his only son into the world two things that we might live through him and a little later that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins the love of God the selfless love of God that came at great cost said that I will give these people life they are spiritually dead but I will give them life and give it abundantly and then I will come into these people and I will be a propitiation to them and I'll define that in a minute I know that's a handful or a mouthful Christ came to give us life because we were created for eternity. We were created to enjoy fellowship with God forevermore. Yet when we sinned in the garden through Adam, it poisoned that fellowship that we have with God. It produced fear and hatred and greed and pride. Sin, which leads to death and separation, and the tearing apart. And because of that sin that existed in the garden, God said, I can't be with you because of sin. And he sent them out rather than destroying them. And he provided a land to cover their nakedness and their shame, and he sent them out. But he promises, he says, I will not send you out forever. I will bring you into the abundance of life and the fellowship of, of who I am. Jesus said, eternal life is this that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, we will know for eternity because we will dwell with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with all those who have put their faith in the promises of God, and that we will have fellowship with God. We will have life and have it abundantly. We're no longer tied down by the problems of sin and, and death and worry. We will have glorified bodies that will be perfectly able to obey the will of God and not be fatigued and tired and distracted and, and, and sinful but be able to flourish and grow and enjoy the goodness of our God. Not only did um, Christ come to give us life and to bridge that gap and to restore a relationship with God, but he had, must be the propitiation, the atonement for that sin. The mission of Jesus was not to tell us beautiful little stories and parables and that we could make into crafts in Sunday school and make us feel quaint and sentimental at the holiday. The reason Jesus came was to die. And often we look at the manger and we don't consider that little uh, baby so tender and mild. Didn't stay that way. But he grew in favor with God and men. And he taught us of the kingdom and he revealed the righteousness of God and he fully obeyed. He actively obeyed but he um, passively obeyed as well by allowing himself to be killed as a substitute. 
to turn away the wrath of God and to bring the favor of God. Propitiation is to turn away the wrath of God by an offering and to bring the favor of God once again. And Jesus is the final offering. The the offering once for all. The good and perfect offering that He had provided. And we see the love of God and the fact that He was that offering. And it's this great paradox in Scripture that you have at the cross simultaneously the wrath of God seen most brilliantly in pouring the fullness of wrath on on Christ for those who believe. And then at the same moment of this darkness that shrouded Calvary, you see most intensely in high definition for the love of God because when that wrath was poured, it wasn't you. It was Jesus. The creator of life was snuffed out by his creation. The one who had breathed life into his people would now allow them to take life and breath from him. But when he declared it is finished, he declared the beautiful wrath of God and the beautiful love of God that collided in this brilliant tapestry of God's love and mercy. And that no longer are we on the outside and separated from the sweetness and the joy of God's fellowship, but the favor of God has been brought in. And we see the love of God most brilliantly displayed. And Paul wrote this, and he probably almost broke out in song. He who did not spare his own son the great cost, that perfect love and union that existed. He sent Christ. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? The love of God was most brilliantly seen when our greatest enemy, our greatest Goliath, which is death itself, was defeated. We trust that not only will God, has God taken care of our greatest need, but He also takes care of our daily needs. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away as wounds which marred His chosen One, the Christ, brings many sons to glory. Ocean Park, you need to know the significance and the selflessness of the love of God. A love that has loved you without conditions and without limits. A love that's based on your performance, on your beauty, or on your worth, which can all evaporate in an instant. A love that does not depend or does not demand a dividend or seek a return. A love that does not seek personal profit, but strives for the benefit of those He has set His favor upon. Ocean Park, God has chosen to love you not because you're lovable, but despite the fact that you're lovable. And as your pastor, I know I can give a hearty amen to some of those, especially this pulpit. God has set his love upon you 
because of the goodness of his nature and because of the goodness of his will. He has united his glory to the well-being and he delights in your good as a good father delights in the good and seeks the good of his children. A love that transcends your goodness and strength, your failures and weakness. His love does not wilt in difficulty, stumble in adversity, or fade over time. How can I make such an audacious claim of the unconditional, costly love of our God, the cross? Another hymn that we will sing is, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Ocean Park, our sin is great. His love is greater. Though the cost was incredible, Jesus laid down his life to bring eternal fellowship and favor with God. Christian love is the goodness of God delighting in the welfare of his people. And then finally, briefly, verse 11 and 12, we see not only the holy love of God, we don't only see the selfless love of God, but we also see the purposeful love of God. Beloved, if God so loved us with a holy, selfless love, we must also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John Stott, the great Anglican theologian who uh, passed a few years ago, wrote, uh, he didn't, I'll read it to you. He says this, No one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. Let me read that again. No one who has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love, undeserved, unconditional love, displayed there can go back to a life of selfishness. When we see the grandeur and the beauty and the glory of a vertical love of God, it changes how we measure horizontal love to our brothers and sisters. Since the love of God joyfully endured the agony of the cross, we imitate that love by embracing inconvenient, broken, and messy lives of our brothers and sisters. And what John is teaching in these verses is that the love that was expressed at the cross is the greatest expression of love, but that's not the end of God's love. That is the, uh, uh, the first beginning of God's love. There is a mission that God has. And notice at the end of verse 12, God's love is perfected in us. It's not, the, the understanding of this word is not a flawed love that we sort of have to cover up with spackle and some paints. 
It's, this is, is perfected. In other words, it is mission accomplished. There is a goal and a purpose that is, this love is leading towards. And what we do is we accomplish the goal and the purpose of that love that was initiated before the foundations of the earth, that was accomplished at Calvary, and is bringing to completion in the lives of His people. The love that brought us into fellowship with our Heavenly Father at the cross is also bringing us into fellowship with our brothers and sisters of Christ. God's love is accomplished when we cry with those who have lost loved ones. When we visit the sick, when we befriend the lonely, when we buy diapers and formula for struggling struggling parents, when we remember a significant anniversary of a lost loved one, when we skip the ball game to have lunch with somebody who needs to talk, when we gently remind people how selfish they are being, when we take time to listen to someone, when we lower our impossible personal standards to show grace, when we put somebody else's need before our own, when we give our time, our effort, our knowledge, and our physical labor, when we do what doesn't need to be done. Why? Why do we seek the welfare and the well-being of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because at the cross, Christ put your eternal well-being and welfare uh, at the cross before His own. When we love our brothers and sisters like Christ loved us, we are the instrument of God's grace, making our brothers and sisters more like Jesus. When we are selfless, and we love them like Christ has loved us, we are helping to form them into the image of Christ, holy people for fellowship with God. Well-being that is measured by God's goodness and God's holiness. Well-being that is encouraging them to pursue fellowship with God. Well-being that is accomplishing God's purposes for them and not our purposes that we think they should be doing. Let me ask you this as we close. If somebody were watching you, could they learn about the greatness of God's love by observing you? Does your spouse see the holy, selfless, purposeful love of God towards them? Does your children, does your neighbor, Do the people that you spend time with at church, do your people at work, do they see the holy, selfless, purposeful love of God? Or are they surprised that you even love God? This week as we pray and we remember that Christian love is the goodness of God delighting in the welfare of His people, I give you this one disclaimer. Christian love, love divine, all loves excelling, as Wesley put it, is not indigenous to our hearts. And indigenous means it didn't start there. Sort of like armadillos. Armadillos don't belong in Florida. Go back to Texas, that's where you belong. In other words, Christian love does not dwell in the hearts of men. The, why? Because the perfect purity of God's goodness does not arise out of the hearts of sinful men and women. Unless God produces it, we cannot love like God does. But here's the promise. Here's the promise of of the gospel that Paul says in Romans 5. Because God's love has what? Been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you are in Christ, if you are a child of Christ, then the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you and is bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit. And what is the first fruit of the Spirit? It's easy. The whole topic. I've been talking to say love. That was like... Love is the primary indication of the Holy Spirit. There are times, though, when we are not fueling the Spirit and we're quenching and grieving the Spirit by what we are setting our minds up and what we're doing with our bodies. And if you say, I do not have a holy, a selfless, and a purposeful love, you have the promise that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, believer. And you can say, Father, stir your spirit within me that I may love well and that I may love like Jesus. You have to discipline yourself and train your mind because all those Lennon and McCartney and all those other people, they want to convince you that love is this. And that's a counterfeit. It's not real. It won't satisfy you. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is show you that the love of God is real and it's genuine. Each day, wake up and say, I want to know you, Lord, and the fellowship. And to fellowship with your spirit, that your spirit would burn. And what you do is you take gasoline and you pour that on your heart. In prayer, in Bible reading, in the presence of God's people, it is essential that you make it a priority to be here at worship each week. Why? Because the world doesn't care about the love of God and they don't care about you. But the Holy, our Heavenly Father, who has deposited His Spirit and who has sacrificed His Son on your behalf, wants you to be holy and to be righteous and to look like Jesus and to be in fellowship. Read His Word. Call out to His Spirit and say, I don't love help me. And each day, read his word and pray and spend time with believers and be under the preaching of God's word. Listen, I'm no Charles Spurgeon, but if anything you can't accuse me of, I pray that I have my finger on the text and I'm preaching God's word. It may be clunky at times, but I want you to get this word because you need this word. Now, there are others here this morning who don't know Jesus and don't know of the love that we have in Christ. Jesus is an eight-pound baby Jesus in a manger. It's sentimental. It's silly, these silly things. But maybe this morning your heart is burning, and you're saying, I know I don't have a love like that. And I want a love like that. Love came down at Christmas. A holy love that wants, that is a reflection of the goodness of God that desires the best for you to be in fellowship with him. A love that Jesus Christ came and sacrificed himself so you would not receive the wrath. And a love that desires your best and desires fellowship with you. And a love that the good shepherd Jesus Christ says, follow me. A love that leaves the 99 in the safety of, the, of the, the sheep gate and goes and finds that little one that crawl, cries out to God. I am yours. Save me.